0: The book of Jude, we read and introduced the book last week, we will read the entire book and finish our exposition of it today. The General Epistle of Jude, hear now the holy, inerrant, infallible, and inspired Word of God. Jude For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will, therefore, put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not, And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion. And speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, while contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. Durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally as brute beasts. In those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. And ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These are spots in your feasts of charity, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds. Trees, whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. But, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, Praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory and ex- with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. May the Lord grant his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of his most holy word. You may be seated. Well, last week we introduced this book, and we, we reminded ourselves that this is considered a general epistle. It's a general epistle in the sense that it is not sent to a particular person, but it's for all Christians in general. For all Christians, um, when Jude writes this, he's writing it to the church as it existed in that day and for every Christian in the church and for the world to hear from every age following. Uh, We said the author is Jude, and we we answered the question, who is this Jude? And we said, you know, that's a controversial question. But Jude identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. We said this James is James Alpheus or James the Less, that prominent James of Jerusalem, who presided over the Jerusalem Council in the Book of Acts, and so that this Jude is really Judas Alpheus, Jude being the Greek, uh, the shortening of the Greek name Judas, which is the Hebrew Judah, and so this is the Apostle James Alpheus, known uh, identifying himself as Jude in this book. The occasion and the purpose of this letter is that there had been um, wicked, ungodly men who had crept into the church, unawares, he says, um, to, uh, who were there subverting the faith. They, had, uh, uh, they were teaching uh, false doctrines. They were living ungodly lives. The word lascivious, uh, meaning uh, sexually immoral or wanton lives. Um, they, had, they had turned the grace of God into lasciviousness, Jude says. And his purpose is to exhort Christians to earnestly contend against these ungodly men, in particular ungodly teachers within the church, to keep the faith and the church pure and undefiled from these early false teachers. And so this becomes an exhortation to contend for the faith, not just then, but in every age of the church. We also pointed out, and hopefully you you took my advice last time and you read 2 Peter, because Jude and 2 Peter are very closely tied to each other. You're going to see a lot of similarities. The apostle Judas and the apostle Peter are, are writing with the same thoughts in mind and are no doubt in conference with each other as they're sending their letters out. We also dealt with two of the controversies in this book. One is that Jude quotes from Enoch, this quote of Enoch, and some people have said, well, this would undermine Undermine the uh, inspiration, the inspiration of the Bible. If if this Jude is using this uninspired book of Enoch and quoting from it, and we said, well, uh, Peter Paul does this all the time, quoting from unbelievers within his books, and Jude, being an apostle, when he writes something under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is inspired. We have no, there's no qualms about him quoting this, and if, and and if. If he quotes that Enoch gave this prophecy, then Enoch gave this prophecy, even if the book of Enoch is not inspired. And then secondly, with regard to this um, account of of, the, uh, of, of the, um, the contention or the controversy between the archangel Michael and the devil about the body of Moses, this tradition called the Assumption of Moses, though the tradition might be surrounded with all sorts of things that aren't true, when the apostle Jude puts it in his letter that this happened, you can know it happened. You don't have to worry about it. It's, it's an inspired account. And so we also said that whereas the assumption of Moses, that, that Hebrew tradition that has passed into antiquity, we have no written records of this anymore, um, whereas that has passed away, the book of Jude has been providentially preserved by God and placed in the canon so that we don't, ha- it, we don't have to worry about it whether this is inspired or not. And so where people have, have tried to criticize the text of this letter and its inclusion in the canon, we can answer those things pretty easy, knowing that Jude is Judas Elpheus, the apostle of Jesus Christ. So today, we want to, um, to proceed in the book. We talked about what the exhortation was last week, how um, he's exhorting us to contend for the faith, and when we talk about faith, what we're talking about there is not the personal faith that you have. When he's talking about contending to the, for the faith once delivered to the saints, he's talking about the system of doctrine in Christianity, which is identified really in our creeds and confessions. right Those, those are summary statements of the faith. That, that our salvation is founded upon, the faith of Jesus Christ. All of those things that Christ has taught and commanded within his church, that's what the faith is here, and that's what we're contending for. Amen. So as we proceed today, we're going we're to move past verses 3, we're going to do the rest verse verses 1, 2, and 3, and move to the end of the book. And I adjusted the outline a little bit. Okay, from what, If you wrote down what I gave you last week, I adjusted it a little bit. You give me a week to think about it, I'm always going to tweak it. Verses 4 through 7, I'm identifying as a section on why we contend. Verses 4 through 7 are why we contend. Verses 8 through 19 describe who we contend against. Who are we fighting against here? Jude gives us a description of the adversary. Verses 20 through 23 describe what we ought to be in this contention. Maybe how we ought to act, what we ought to do. And then the book finishes in verses twenty-four through twenty-five with this wonderful doxology, this this exclamation of praise, who really, which is really a praise to the one who is preserving you in the contention. Amen. Right. That's how he finishes the book. So <clears throat> we we talked about the contention. We talked about the need to fight, the need to to uh, to bear up against those who sneak into the church. They are. They're servants of the devil, unbelievers, there to subvert the faith of Jesus Christ, and we war against them. We find that in verse 3. Now in verses 4 through 7, we see why we contend. We contend because, Jude says, there are ungodly men in the church. Verse 4, for there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude is primarily concerned to instruct us that we contend because there are enemies sneaking into the church, and this is true in the earliest days of the church, and they are true today. These men are wolves in sheep's clothing, deceivers, corruptors. They're wicked men. They are wicked teachers. They are wicked leaders who profess Christ, but they do not hold to him by faith. Amen. They may claim to love Christ. You'll hear you'll hear them say that they're Christians. You'll hear them profess their love for Christ. But they live and they teach things and they live in a way that looks sort of like Christianity, but it's deceptive. Their claims to love Christ are a camouflage for wickedness. Amen. Um, they have no right to be in the church, really, because their profession is a lie. They're in the church because they professed Christ, but it's a false profession. Amen. It's a deceitful profession. We remind ourselves that in the visible church, on this side of heaven, the ungodly will be within the church. They must be contended against. It's, this is, this is a, a group of wheat and tares within the visible church, right? And we contend against the tares. The common form of ungodliness that that Jude presents to us here is that these men, and this is kind of foundational to all of it, right? They take the grace of God and they turn it into lasciviousness. They take the grace of God and turn it into opportunities for sin, for wickedness, for sexual immorality, for lawlessness. Reminded of a little poem that I heard from Dr. Gordon Clark years ago. The attitude of these men is, Saved from the law, O blessed condition. I can sin all I want and still find remission, right? That's turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. I've been freed from the requirement of holiness because I'm saved in Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, Christ died to make us holy. Amen. And all true Christians hate their sin and desire holiness. Notice I didn't say all true Christians are fully holy. We hate our sin and we desire holiness. These men desire no holiness. When people claim Christ and then use his grace to excuse sinfulness, they show themselves to be unbelievers. Amen. Now these men also corrupt Christ's ordinances by making up their own way of worship and their own way of government, refusing to submit to him. There are those who profess, These are those who profess faith in Christ and then corrupt his grace and encourage others to do so. These, this is the adversary that Jude Is pointing out. And this is this corrupting of grace is really denying the worth and power of Christ's death. It's denying the worth and power of his kingship over the church. It's denying his sovereignty. It's denying his sovereignty over his people, over his worship, and over the order that he has established within his church. We never make up our own rules within the church. Christ's rules. These men would make up their own rules and they're corruptors and deceivers, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. But in this same section, Jude also encourages us, don't be afraid. In verse 4, we have with the identification of of these wicked the concept that God has ordained these men to this condemnation. Isn't that a comfort to know? That this just doesn't come out of nowhere. It doesn't come from right field. It's no surprise God has ordained that there be contentions within the church. Contentions within the church? God's ordained this? Yes. Does God's providence extend to every creature and every action? Amen. Does his decree extend to every creature and every action? So then why would God ordain contentions within the church? Well, remember back when we went through the book of Judges? What did God say, why he, the reason why he left those Canaanites in the land? was to prove the Israelites, to test them. God has ordained that these enemies of Christ would creep into the church so that you might learn to use your spiritual weapons, so that the church might learn how to wage war, so that the church might be battle-tested and proven, We may come to heaven with spiritual scars, but we will come proven and tested. We spoke last week how the creeds and confessions of the church are the results of these contentions. Well, these creeds and confessions are the matured, battle-tested, proven confessions and doctrines of the church. They're not lightly held. They're bathed in blood, brothers and sisters. Our confessions and creeds are bathed in the blood of the saints because they contended... For the truth, the church is strengthened and built up by identifying and contending against the enemies of Christ that are within her midst. And it's a comfort to know that these things are no surprise to God. They're ordained and directed by him for your good. (laughs) Jude then attaches three strong encouragements within this section in verses 5 through 7 to remind us how important it is to contend. And and it's all founded on this one idea in verses 5 through 7. God takes vengeance upon the wicked. Nobody gets a free pass, either in this life or the next. In verse 5, we're told, contend because God judges the wicked inside the church. And he uses Old Testament Israel brought out of Egypt as the example. Remember, that even though God loved his people and redeemed them out of Egypt, when they murmured and they complained and they rebelled, what did he do? He killed them in the wilderness. The unbelievers, he killed them in the wilderness. And in those days, in that era of the church, the, the extension of the Holy Spirit within the church wasn't as, as profuse. It wasn't, it wasn't as full. And so there's only a handful, perhaps, of people that go from Egypt into the promised land who believe. Yet the church moves into the promised land. In verse 6, he says, contend because God judges angels. You think it's, just, it's not just within the church. that God takes this so seriously, he even judges angels. Remember that although God made angels to be his special ministers, special spiritual um, servants, when those non-elect angels fell, he reserved them in the blackness of darkness. He put them in bondage unto that day of condemnation. If God will do that for the angels, will he not do that? For those who sin against him in this life and in this church. And then verse 7. Contend because God judges the wicked outside of the church. In this example, brothers and sisters, there are two cities that are buried under the Dead Sea. Today, which stand as a reminder and an example to the world that God judges sin. God judges sin. And what is common between these three examples? Every example were, is an example of those who sinned against God's favor and were judged for it. The Israelites were redeemed by God's favor. The, the angels had God's special favor and were, were, put, were judged for it. And Sodom and Gomorrah, were they not the most pleasant cities in the land and turned that goodness of God to lasciviousness and were buried under fire, brimstone, and water because of their sin. This is why we contend, because God is a righteous judge, and no one gets a free pass. Amen. In verses 8 through 19, we see who we contend against. In verses 8 through 10, we, we see a description of the root or the foundational sins that these godly, ungodly men have partaken in. They're described as filthy dreamers. The filthiness of sin, brothers and sisters, is horrid. Make no mistake, sin is filthiness. And the filthiness here is seen in devising their own ways, dreaming up out of their own imagination the way that God will be served. God will love what I offer to him just because I want to offer it to him. Let's let's set up worship after our own image. Let's worship God according to a golden calf. Let's, let's, Let's set up the government of the church in the way we want how we've dreamed it up that's what's being described here is the rebellion that people have when they dream up their own filthy ways of doing things defiling the flesh pertains particularly to sexual immorality again using the presumption that i can go on sinning and i can do what i want because i'm redeemed despising dominion these these ungodly men reject god-ordained authority They have an independent and unsubmissive spirit, refusing good discipline and good order. Right? It's it's a good thing to discipline a child. It's a good thing to be disciplined in the church if you need it. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves, and these hate that sort of discipline. These men speak evil of dignities. Here we're talking about speaking wickedly against those in authority over you. Right, so that's what these people do. They they rise up and they have nothing good to say about the civil magistrate, the ecclesiastical leaders, or the, or your parents. Right, these are those who rebel against authority. Then we come to verse nine, and here we have that that difficult or potentially difficult passage with regard to the body of Moses. It's, it's really not difficult if you understand what Jude is saying here. Jude is showing that these men take authority to themselves. These are the men who despise dominion. They speak evil of dignities. And instead of submitting, they'll speak and make railing accusations against those in authority against them. And even the archangel Michael wouldn't do that. When he was, when he was contending with the devil for the body of Moses, instead of saying, I'm an angel, get out of my way, Satan... The angel, archangel says, The Lord rebuked thee. He would not take authority to himself. In other words, he's a humble angel. These men are the opposite of that. They take authority to themselves. And, you know, the way that they package it today is these things can all be, be brought out this way I have no creed but Christ, <laughs> there's no law but Christ. I'm freed from my sin. I don't have to listen to you, church rule leader, because Jesus is my king. Jesus is my only authority, right? This is how we package those things today within the church. And this account in verse 9 is not intended to describe the details of some spiritual warfare. It does pull the curtain back a little bit on that, but that's not the intention. The intention here is to say even the angels will not will not war in their own authority. They do it at the direction and under the authority of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 describes why these people are in such danger. And it's because they followed in the ways of Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Why these three? Why Cain, Balaam, and Korah? If you recall, Cain in Genesis 4, he's going to kill Abel. Right? And Balaam, he's going to prophesy against God's people. And Korah stood up against Moses and said, What makes you so good, Moses? Why can't we have the authority as well? Well, if you remember, each one of those passages, what connects them together is the fact that these three men all continued in sin despite warnings. In Genesis 4, Cain is ready to kill Abel, and God comes to him and says, Sin is at the door, Cain. You, have, you can turn from this. And what does Cain do? He continues on in sin. Balaam, he's going to go prophesy against the children of Israel. And he's going to proceed down an ungodly path. And God sends an angel to stand in the road to warn him against it. But what does, ba- what does Balaam do? He goes on and he sins. Korah. Korah is given a day and a night to change direction. Moses says to him, Be here tomorrow with your censers in your hand, and we're going to find out who the Lord has called to this office. And what happened to them? Swallowed up into the earth. The commonality between these three people and the, those, those corruptors in the church is they all sin against warning. These are men in the church who hear the gospel, who hear the warnings of the law, the, those, those gospel warnings, and yet they continue on in their corrupting way. And what is the end of these, these people? It's, it's chastisement, it's judgment, it's death, it's destruction. In verses 12 through 19, uh, Jude describes these subverters even more clearly. They are spots in your love feasts, he says. They've corrupted the fellowship of the church. Why? Because they have no fear of God before their eyes. They're, they are so, uh, so set in their ways and so set in their wickedness, without the fear of God or any of his judgment, That they'll corrupt the church and they'll come along into your your fellowship meals of the church and enjoy all the wonderful things of the church, corrupting them all at the same time. They're clouds without water, trees with no fruit, trees which look dead and are dead. Their professions of faith are worthless. There's no fruit. A cloud, especially in the Middle East, a cloud with no water seems to be a curse. You might get some shade, but you need the water. Why plant a tree if you're not going to get the fruit of it? These are vain and, and worthless people. They're, in verse 13, they're raging waves of the sea. They foam out shame. They're contentious. They're bitter. They're bickering. They're loveless. They're wandering stars. The idea here is of, of something that cannot be trusted for navigation. right? We, we can sail our ships. We can find our way through the wilderness by, by looking at the stars. But a wandering star, the, word here, the Greek word is planetas think planet. You can't can't, uh, navigate at night by the planets. They move too quickly relatively to the earth's motion. Relative to the earth's motion. You need stars, not planets. The planets were wandering stars, not trustworthy. These men are not trustworthy. They lead people astray. They're murmurers in verse 16, complainers, discontent, So brothers and sisters, murmuring, complaining, discontent is a great and filthy sin. Amen. In verses 16 and 18, they walk after their own lusts. This is a violation of more than just thou shalt not commit adultery. It's a violation of thou shalt not have any other gods before me. They set themselves up as the rule and they follow whatever they want. Let's do what pleases ourselves. They prefer men, in verse 16, having men's person and admiration because of advantage. They, they prefer people, certain people, because of the advantage of what they can get from them. <sighs> verse 19, they separate themselves. They're char- characterized by an independent spirit, a lack of submission to authority and being contentious. And they're described as sensual, not having the spirit. These ungodly professors are earthly-minded not heavenly-minded. They're not governed by spiritual desires, but by carnal and earthly ones. Because they aren't believers and they aren't filled with the Spirit, they can only desire earthly things. And then again in this section, Jude gives us in verses 14 through 15, um, and then verse 17 and 18, an encouragement to not be surprised. And he gives us two witnesses to tell us why we shouldn't be surprised. Jude says there's a comfort in this because it's been foretold prophetically, first in verses 14 through 15 by Enoch, way back before the flood. Enoch said there's going to be ungodly men in the church that'll have to be contended with. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude brings this prophecy of Enoch in and to tell us, to comfort you, this is nothing new. Don't be surprised. Enoch told us about this even before the flood. In a sense, this is true in every age of the church. In verses 17 to 18, he says the apostles also told us this. The apostles built upon that truth of Enoch and said there, there are going to be people in there. John talks about the Nicolaitans. Jezebel in the book of Revelation. Peter in Second in Peter talks about these, these usurpers in the church. And just so you're not worried to think that well, is Jude saying he's not an apostle when he speaks in the third person? We often will speak in the third person to describe a group of people that we're still a part of. I could say, your elders have told you something and I'm still included in the group, right? Jude is not saying he's not an apostle here. He's just simply saying that the apostles have all told you this. This all fits. Don't worry. It's not out of accord with God's plan. Don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged. God is at work. And in verses 20 through 23, he describes what we ought to be doing, who we are, what we ought to be. And he describes it with these ING words, building, praying, keeping, looking. Those are active, Those are active words, aren't they? In Verse 20, we're being built up on the faith. You should be building up on the faith. Grow in the faith. Grow in the doctrines. Make progress in what you've been taught. Attend unto the word, especially the public teaching and preaching. And be careful how you build. The Apostle Paul says some people build with hay and stubble. Others build with fine fine things like gold and silver, which don't decay. Be careful what you build with. And how do you build By praying in the Holy Ghost, verse 20, be spiritually minded, not sensual. Be the opposite of these people. Live by faith. Rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit. The way to build is to pray. Be a praying person. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. In other words, stay in the places where God keeps you safe. Remember that. That, that book, Pilgrim's Progress, every time Christian would wander from the path, he'd end up in a, bad, in a bad place. Every time he came back to the straight and narrow, even though it was a hard path, he was safe, he was protected there. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Where is the love of God found? Within the church. And verse 21, look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is only through the mercy of God in Christ. Put yourself in your place. You cannot earn your way to heaven. Look for mercy. It's your only hope of salvation. You cannot earn your way there. You cannot make your own way. Mercy in Jesus Christ. In verses 20 through 23, he describes the fellowship and the discipline which is required, which are markers of that visible church communion, which is necessary. He says, save some through compassion. Churches that do not discipline are not showing compassion. Amen. They claim to be, but they're not. They're letting people walk in sin and, and stumble. Churches which do not exercise discipline, though they say it might be loving, are not loving. It is loving to save those who are wayward by fear. The, 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 the fear that comes with discipline to make people understand that there is an accounting, that God does take vengeance upon the wicked. Discipline teaches this. True fellowship, true discipline are those things which draw the wayward uh, back into fellowship. And then finally, in verses 24 through 25, we, we conclude with this doxology, the praise of the one who preserves you. It's as if Jude is closing this out by saying, don't be confused about where the power for your preservation and this contention comes from. Mm. If the success were in doubt, or if you were doubting that maybe it's not possible for us to succeed, Jude finishes with a precious and powerful doxology. He says, give praise to the one who keeps you from falling. If you are not like these ungodly professors, it's not because of you because of him it's because of the lord and praise the lord for that we have no hope in and of ourselves it's all because of god and so therefore you can be kept in comfort comforted and remember it is to the praise of god's own glory to present you faultless before his throne and is there anything that god is not more jealous for than his own glory so will he risk you at the expense of his glory He will not. He will not risk his church at the expense of his glory. But he sends contentions to the church so that he might be glorified in you and in us. So we leave this this letter with an exhortation to contend. To contend against these ungodly. And to do so without fear or discouragement, but knowing that God has us right where he wants us. Amen. Amen. Turn with me and stand, if you're able, in your Psalters to Psalm 53. There is no God, has said the foolish.